0: Well, good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, turn them to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 3, and when we read the text in just a moment, we'll begin reading in verse number 7. Now, I guess some of you may know me better than others, so I'll tell you a little bit about myself, sort of a background for our sermon this morning. I am, um, my name is Donnie. Uh, My wife, Amber, serves here at TCC as a children's minister. You probably know her more than you know me, and I'm Trace's dad. For the last uh, eight and a half years, almost nine now, I have taught New Testament and Greek and hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible at North Greenville University. That's not how I started uh, college. I began at the University of Kentucky. I'm a born and bred from the tips of my toes to the top of my head Kentuckian and lived in Kentucky all my life until I moved to Travelers Rest nine years ago. It's quite a change to be perfectly honest. You can take that how you will. Uh, But I started as a mechanical engineering major at the University of Kentucky and in my sophomore year in the middle of October God called me to vocational Christian service. Now I enjoyed the fact that I was a student at the University of Kentucky. I enjoyed mechanical engineering. Some might find that strange. Others, not so much. I enjoyed the scholarships that I had to go to school. And I enjoyed going to basketball games at Rupp Arena. You can decide which one was most important to me. And so I stayed there. And I went on to seminary. And when I got to seminary, I realized that God had wired me to teach, not as a pastor. I thought that that was what he was calling me to as a full time vocational pastor, but he had called me to teach people how to study the Bible, particularly Greek. I fell in love with that language. And again, that sounds probably very strange. But by the time I got to the end of my seminary years, I was trying to figure out where I was going and what I was doing, and God had given me the opportunity to pursue a PhD in New Testament. And I was very good at looking at the minutiae and the detail. I love the minutiae and the detail of the Greek language, which will probably surprise my wife a lot because I'm not really a detailed person. But my eyes were wide or open wide to the work of Jesus historically to complete the story of Israel in a book that I read in my very last semester as a seminary student called Jesus and the Victory of God. It was the most interesting historical Jesus book that I had ever read, and that led me into a dialogue with a guy named N.T. Wright, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Paul and the narrative elements of Paul's theology, particularly in Galatians 3. So that leads to la- well, the summer of 2012. I had the great privilege, the great privilege of serving on jury duty. If any of you have ever served on jury duty, you know what that's like. It's boring, and you're hoping they don't call your name. At least I was hoping they didn't call my name. And so I had brought my Kindle so that I could read while I was waiting, because there's a lot of waiting in that week. And you're just hoping they'll send you home. And I was sort of brought into reading this book by N.T. Wright, called How God Became King. And this is the, the central thesis of the book. Why did Jesus live? You ever thought about that? If you think about it, in the creeds, Jesus is described as one who is born of a virgin, and that's absolutely, fundamentally, 100% true. And then it skips over his life to his death, resurrection, and ascension. And if you think about how we normally think of Jesus' life, we think of it as he's born of a virgin, he lives a perfect life, we don't really ever think about why, So that he can die on the cross. And that's never been very satisfying to me. And on the other side of it, you've got folks who say, well, what matters is all that only matters is that stuff in the middle that Jesus did, where he does good things, he helps people that are being oppressed, and he restores justice in the land. But they don't really want to deal with the whole fact that he's God in the flesh, or that he dies for sin. So why did he live? And Mark here in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19 tells us the answer. Why did Jesus live? Well, let's look at what he says. And what we have here on the heels of the end of a series of controversy stories that Jesus has come into conflict with all kinds of various folks, and particularly at the end, he's come into conflict with the religious leaders. And Mark gives us a very sort of negative view of their perspective on Jesus and some foreshadowing of a very difficult future in verse 6 when he says the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. But look at verse 7. In contrast to this, sort of ending a previous section and beginning anew, Mark says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were, they were saying, He is out of his mind. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning... Recognizing that you are the king. That you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. And that you have made a way for us in the person of your son to know you. And Lord, I pray today That our hearts and our minds, by the work of your Spirit in us, would set us on Jesus. That we would realize in a new way, in a deeper way, in a more profound way, the fact that he is the, the king of our lives and that he demands everything from us. And he deserves it. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study your word, we would be moved by your greatness. That we would be moved by the greatness of your Son. And that we would be changed. We pray all of this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So. Mark is trying to and quite effectively demonstrating that Jesus is the king. Even the title of our series, Kingdom Come, demonstrates that reality, that Jesus is a king and that he is establishing his reign. So how is it that Mark is demonstrating this reality in the midst of these verses in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19? Well, the first thing that we see is his reign, his realm. Because if you're a king, you've got to have a realm over which to rule. Now, the interesting thing about this is that there's going to be a clash of what his people were expecting him to do, what God's people were expecting him to do, and what he actually came to accomplish and bring about. So let's walk through this and see what it is that he's doing. So let's look at verses 7 through 12 again. Let's read them together. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So he's left away from where he was with the the controversy that he has with the Pharisees and he withdraws to his, with his disciples to the sea. But that doesn't mean that he's going to be alone. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So here we have our contrast. In the previous verse, we've been told that the Herodians, the ones that are in charge of the Galilee and the Pharisees, are gathering together to plot the demise of this man, Jesus. He's standing against them, the people are following, but even this desire of the Pharisees and the Herodians to get rid of Jesus doesn't deter the crowds, at least at this point. And Mark here is describing for us the difference between Jesus and John the Baptist. This was a problem in the early church at various times because who is more important? John the Baptist came first, but he was always saying, Jesus actually came before me. That means he's greater than I am, that I am not worthy to stoop down and to tie the sandals of his shoes. And so here we have this contrast because folks were coming out from Jerusalem and all Judea to hear John, but look at where they're coming from to hear Jesus. Jesus. They're coming from the Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, which is down south by the Dead Sea and beyond the Jordan on the other side of the river and around from Tyre and Sidon. And what we see here is there is an expansion of the ministry of Jesus. This echoes the description of what God was going to do, by the way, when he himself intervened. And restored his people. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 43. That from all of the directions on the compass. God is going to draw together his people. And that's exactly what is being described here. That the kingdom is coming. And that God from all over his This area of Palestine and even greater is drawing in his people and he's going to draw them in from the whole expanses of his creation to bring them to himself. And he wants us to recognize here that there are folks that want to hear Jesus. They are desiring and they're walking days' journeys to come and hear what he has to say. And keep that in the back of your mind. See, many of these folks have never seen what Jesus has done. They're only hearing it. They're hearing it by word of mouth already. They're hearing the greatness of this man Jesus. The prophet has said that the kingdom is coming and now the king is arriving and the people are streaming from all over to hear what God is doing to bring an end to their suffering, to bring an end to their oppression, to bring an end to their sin. Because at the end of the day, the reason they're under all of these problems is a sin problem. But there's a disconnect in first century Palestine. The disconnect is that they expect that what the kingdom is going to look like when it comes is the removal of the power of the Romans. But what we see here is the real enemy comes to the forefront very quickly. So look at what happens in verse 10, 11, and 12. Beginning in verse... uh, Actually, pick it up in verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. There's quite an ironic reality that the crowd at this point is more dangerous than his opponents. For he had healed many. That's not to say that there were any that were left out. But he's saying that there were many people that have come and that have been healed. So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. But notice where the real battle is being waged. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. You see, the reality of the situation is that Jesus' kingdom is going to come on the earth, but the enemy is not Rome. The enemy is Satan, sin, and death. So let's look at what the demons say. Look at what the confession of those people who are demon-possessed is. Their confession is, you are the Son of God. Now that's a little strange, isn't it? Because back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, something very interesting happens. Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan... And notice what takes place. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John of the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being ripped open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then, the third thing, a voice comes from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This voice from heaven is very clearly the voice from, of God who is declaring to Jesus, You are my son. So the demon is saying here about Jesus the same thing that God's saying about Jesus, that he's the son of God. That seems a little strange, doesn't it? Well, let's look at another place. Let's go over just a few verses there in chapter 1 to chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. Now, normally... I would tell you, never listen to a demon. Okay? If you're ever confronted with a demon, don't listen. It's a bad idea. But Mark is telling us very early on, listen to what the demons say. Because what they're saying is true. Look at what he says there in verses 32 to 34. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or demon-possessed, and the whole city gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And then notice the last clause. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So right here at the very beginning, Mark is saying, listen to what the demons have to say. Because when they speak, they speak the truth. Now, does that mean that they... Follow Jesus? Well, of course not. Does that mean they like the fact that they're making this confession? Of course not. Does that mean that they are in favor of what Jesus has come to do? Well, absolutely not. But the fact of the matter is, they are a defeated enemy that has to, has no choice but to confess the truth about the identity of Jesus. Look at what happened in just the passage right before, in chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A description, by the way, of the one true and living God from Isaiah. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Notice, be silent, come out. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? And notice what they don't say here about a miracle. A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread throughout everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, so here we have this situation. Demons confessing who Jesus is, but being told not to speak. So let's go back to our text in Mark chapter 3, verse 12. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And here is sort of the the quintessential passage that underlines something that Mark is doing throughout the entirety of his gospel. And that is, he is declaring to us, Jesus is the Son of God, but you better not talk about it. It's oftentimes called the Messianic secret in the gospel of Mark. Here's the problem. The Messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark, while it is there, is kept about as good as a secret is kept amongst a group of 8th graders. It's not very well kept. You remember what that was like, right? Don't tell anybody. And then everybody knew. Maybe it's like some churches, I don't know. So here we have this situation. The demons are told, don't speak about who Jesus is. But if you notice something about that in the Gospel of Mark, he never tells them to be quiet until after they've already told it. And they're the only ones who actually obey. Let's look at a couple of examples where Jesus heals people. Turn over in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, and he touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See see that you say nothing to anybody. Don't say anything to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Jesus commanded, or what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now turn over to chapter 7, verses 31 to 36. And there are others, but this is, I think, a key one. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Now it's a little unclear about where he spit. It could be rather disgusting, I guess. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephastha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And look at what Jesus does. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Don't say it, oh, we're going to say it even more. Don't say it, we're going to say it even more. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. You see, the miracles... If you go and look in the prophets, the miracles describe the arrival of the kingdom. Lame people leaping and walking. The deaf hearing and speaking. God raising up the dead through the work of Jesus. That says the kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. God is in the midst of his people. And the people, even though they have been commanded, don't say anything, can't help but say something. Because this is an exciting reality. But here's the problem. Their expectation of what Jesus is going to do and what he was going to be is completely wrong. They're expecting Jesus to gather up an army, to go to Jerusalem, to overthrow the Roman emperor and to establish God's kingdom, one king replaced with a better king who is our king. That's what they were looking for. That's why Jesus says, be quiet about it, don't say anything about it at all. But the reality of the fact is, he is the king. They cannot keep it to themselves, even in their ignorance. And they declare him. Jesus is king. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Everything's going to be made well. But you see, the greatness... Of his kingdom is that it's not going to be reserved for that little strip of land in Palestine about 80 miles long from north to south look down a little bit further if you would in chapter 3 verse 16 in chapter 3 verse 16 there is a very small thing that he says that Mark tells us about Jesus and the Apostles, he appointed the twelve. This statement that he made them twelve is highly symbolic. Implicit in this statement that he made them twelve is the rejection of the authority of the religious leaders, is a rejection of the so-called hope that could be found in the religious practices of the temple. Jesus is truly establishing his kingdom, the true Israel, through these twelve men. The reason we know that this number is highly symbolic is what happens in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26. You don't have to turn over there. I'll tell you what happens. You know how the story ends. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected. Jesus ascends into heaven. In Acts chapter 5, 1, verse 15 and following, the, fir- the one thing they do beyond praying for the arrival of the Holy Spirit is to make sure that that number of 12 is complete when the Spirit comes and the kingdom is launched. Because this is the true kingdom, the true people of God. And there were two things. You had to be with them from the time of the baptism of John and you had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. They had to be witnesses of all that Jesus has done and all that he's accomplished. And the expanse of this kingdom is going to be worldwide. What you see in the book of Acts is the conquering of the world through the preaching of the kingdom of God. And where does it end? With Paul sitting right down the street from the Caesar saying, there is another king and it's not the man who sits on the throne here but is the one who sits on the throne of heaven. Now, he's got a realm and a reign. Well, the king's also going to have men. That's what Humpty Dumpty tells us. All the king's horses, all the king's men. Well, let's look at the king's men as we see them described here in chapter 3, verse 13 and following. But here, one of the things I want to say before we get to this, I hope you recognize That the telling of this passage about the healing miracle of casting out demons and here the passage about the king's men is really not about the men. It's not about the miracle, it's about the king. So let's see what it says here. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he was desiring. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him. And he might send them out and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, and he's going to give the list of the names. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So from out of this larger group of followers, he chooses these twelve whom he is desiring. And notice the authority that comes in the fact that he names them. As Wright explains, Jesus is not casting himself as a first among equals. He is not leading the member, he is not the leading member of the 12. He is the one who calls them into existence and gives them their status and role and he, this is the key. That in the Old Testament is what Israel's God had done. You see Jesus in his ministry as Mark is presenting it is enacting the kingly reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. God is enacting his reign He is the king. He always has been. He always will be. But he's bringing it to bear in a way that will not ever end on the earth. Think about what the Bible says in Judges 21-25. There was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's not talking about a real earthly, physical, human king. Because they all failed. What the writer of Judges is getting to is God is not king in Israel. And they get a king, Saul, and his reign is a disaster. And then they get another king, this king after God's own heart. Saul was a king like all the other nations had. Now they get a king after God's own heart, David, probably the greatest king Israel ever had, but he was a murderer. If this is the best that we have for a king, we're in trouble. But the king has come. He is naming his followers. He is naming these apostles to follow after him. He is the king. And the irony is, in the first century, the confession of the Jews was, We have no king but God, and God has come as king, and most of them don't recognize it and don't like it. But that's exactly what the prophet said was going to happen. Jesus is demonstrating what it looks like when God dwells in the midst of his people. And he unites them. He brings them together into one people. Look at that list again. We know the first few names on the list, and the fact of the matter is we don't hear, really, of the fourth through the twelfth, except for what Judas does. We don't hear much about any of them. But look at the list Beginning in verse eighteen, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew. We remember Matthew; he's the tax collector. And Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon, the Cananean. That word Cananean is a little disputed, but Luke interprets it for us and tells us what he means by it—a zealot. Now think about that for a second. You've got a tax collector who is basically the Benedict Arnold the people of God he is working for the Romans stealing from his people conveying the oppression of Rome through taxation and a man whose life's goal is to overthrow Rome in everyday life if Simon the Canaanite had an opportunity he would have knifed Matthew in the back doing service to God and he has brought them together under his lordship, under his kingship, under his banner for the purpose of making his own name known and extending his wise rule in this world that he has made. And the fact of the matter is, is he does the same for us. He brings us together from different backgrounds, different places. We're filled with differences. There are too many of them To count, and if we try to build a unity in this body around anything or anyone other than Jesus, we are doomed. We will have different preferences on everything from music to the way we dress to the color of the carpet. Submission to Jesus means that coming together in a body means that all of our preferences are killed. Because he's the king, and he must be declared. Not my preferences. Because very clearly, Simon the Canaanite's preference was the only good good Roman is a dead Roman. The only good tax collector is a dead one. But under the authority and power of the king, his preferences were destroyed. But notice the purpose for bringing them to himself. There are two. To be with him. Look at what he says there in verse 14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And then secondly, he might send them out to preach. You see, personal involvement with and training by the master is the essential prerequisite for what is going to follow. If anyone could have ever done things on his own, it was Jesus. But he desired to invest his life in this group of guys. They would frustrate him with their stupidity, their pride, their failures. And all you've got to do is read the Gospel of Mark, and you will see stupidity, pride, and failure on almost every page as it pertains to the disciples. But he gives them success in the mission. If you look in chapter 6, verses 7-13, through you'll find that because they have been with him and he sends them out, he reshapes them, he remakes them, and even in the midst of the fact that all throughout the rest of the book there is failure because Jesus is king, God is at work, and he brings change through their preaching and through their teaching, and Jesus stuck, stuck with them. Being with Jesus is more than just hanging out. It's him being involved in your life. It's him rebuking you. It's him even going so far as with the disciples to say, are your hearts hardened? That's kind of tough. But it's what they needed. It's what we need. In your pews, you've got a little card. It says TCC clusters. The way we're going, one of the main ways that we're going to grow as individuals and as a body is by being with Jesus and we do that together. And So here on this card everyone needs to fill it out. Put your name, your email, your phone number and if you're currently meeting with a couple of folks in a more uh, scripture on life, life on life that's closer than what you have in your small groups, write that down. And if you feel confident and equipped to meet with a younger Christian For the purpose of discipleship, mark that if you're not presently doing this. Or if you would like to be disciple, mark that. Put it in the offering plate, leave it in the pew, we'll get it picked up. But you need to be with Jesus as you gather with other folks. It is essential. You cannot do the mission that God has called you to do if you're not with Him. It's impossible. It would be trying to accomplish the work of the kingdom in your own flesh. And you're going to fall flat on your face. If you don't believe that, look at the disciples. They try to do these things at times in their own strength. And it is a colossal disaster. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But when we're in community with other believers and we're seeking Jesus together, the purpose... Of the next part, preaching, declaring the good news of Jesus, can be accomplished. Not because we're doing it, but because he's doing it through us. So fill that out. You see, this is a very biblical thing that we're doing, because it's right here. Jesus didn't need these guys. Do you think he needed them to bring in the kingdom? Well, of course not. They're an impediment. But he uses them. Think about what happens In Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin council. The very same people who just a few months before had put Jesus to death. And think about all the blundering. The hardness of heart. The confusion over Jesus' authority. The confusion over what his messiahship and kingship was. The fact that they had all scattered like scared children when he was arrested. And Peter and John stand before them, and they declare, We cannot help but say what we have seen and heard. We don't care what you do to us. We don't care if you kill us. We're not going to stop. And look at their response. Look at what the Bible says about their response. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they wondered, and here it was, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And they knew they were done. There was nothing they could do to stop them. There was nothing they could do to intimidate them because Jesus, well, he hadn't been intimidated and they had killed him. And now these men were saying that, they had, that Jesus had been raised from the dead because that's exactly what happened they had been with Jesus and the fact that God had raised him from the dead gave them a confidence and a power to go out and proclaim the name of Jesus regardless of the result to their own lives because they knew that the power of sin and death had been destroyed in the coming of the kingdom in the death and resurrection of Jesus that's real confidence Being with Jesus leads to recognizing that he's the king whether they let me live or whether they let me die, I will serve him. That's nothing that comes from you. That can only come from him. And so finally, the king. We've looked at his realm. We've looked at his men. So who's the king? In Mark chapter 15, verse 39, we have the first confession Correct confession in the Gospel of Mark by a human being of the identity of Jesus. Well, why do you say that? Well, Mark tells us there in 1539, the centurion, when he saw that Jesus died in this way, said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the son of God. Now, for a Roman centurion, when he thinks son of God, he's thinking of the money that he carries around in his pocket. Because on that coin, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So when he says... When he sees Jesus die in this fashion, truly this man was the Son of God, we see that the kingdom has come in the exaltation of the king in his death. The last place in the world you would expect to see a conquering, victorious king is dying, forsaken by God, left there to die for us. You see, he's ransoming for himself a people. That's what he says in chapter 10, verse 45, that he has come to ransom for himself a people in his death. And so, he is the Son of God. In the Old Testament, Israel is described as God's Son in places like Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. And we're, we don't have time to go there today, but read that text. And in Jeremiah 31, 9, Israel is God's son. But now Jesus is being described as the true son who's going to do what Israel was meant to do and to be. Israel was the one through whom God was going to bless all the peoples of the earth, and the true Israelite Jesus has done this in his death and resurrection. In his death and resurrection, the kingdom of God has come. God's reign is come on earth as it is in heaven, and he will bring it to completion. He reigns and he rules in his world, and he's extending that reign and his rule through his people. He has taken on flesh. He has come to establish a kingdom filled with people in service of the king. You see, the declaration of the gospel is not about you. The gospel is not primarily about you and your sins it's about a king and a kingdom and this king in coming and establishing his reign and rule has taken care of your sins but here's the problem you have offended the king and in offending the king that puts you in a really bad spot Because the king has the sway over your life and your death. But the great thing about our king is that he has made a way for those who have offended him to know him because he reigns, because he rules, because of what he has done in his death and resurrection in bringing the kingdom of God. He has made a way for rebels to be made friends. He has made a way for those of us who deserve wrath and death to live in his kingdom and to display his glory and his name and his fame because he has won and his kingdom is coming. His kingdom's here. As we gather together, this is a demonstration of the fact that His kingdom is here, but His kingdom will come ultimately and completely. And finally, as He returns, His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Just as He's kept His word in the past to bring the kingdom, now He will keep His word to complete it. And just as when Jesus came, He came suddenly. He was God returning suddenly to His people. It was missed and judgment came well this time when he comes it will not be missed every eye will see him but when he comes for those who have offended him and have not received him it will be judgment there will be no negotiation Because the king reigns. And so this morning, as we come to the time of response, if you've never submitted to the king, if you've never given your life over to the king, today's the day. Don't wait one moment longer. Because he is the reigning, ruling king. And for those of us who say we are disciples, we are followers of Jesus, are we following our King? Are we submitting to His reign and His rule? Or are we living in rebellion? Are we living in doubt? Because if he's the king, he's the king of everything. We have no reason to fear or doubt because he's established the end from the beginning. All we are to do is to follow day by day in faithfulness and submission. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, this morning as we respond to the work that your Spirit is doing, I pray that you would take these weak quickly spoken words and infuse them with your power and accomplish your work. Lord, I pray that we as a people would be submissive to your kingship. And that we would respond as your spirit leads for your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.